Hey everyone, and welcome back to Citywide Blackout, your home for the best creators from around the world. I'm your host, Max Bowen, and my next guest, uh, he might be a bit of a familiar face because, well, I've known him for many, many years, and when we last spoke was about 10 years ago or so, talking about his, at the time, recently released fantasy novel, real epic bloodbath, frankly, and absolutely amazing, too. Since then, he has gone on to publish over 50 novels. He has been in the movie I Want to Dance with Somebody. You might have heard of that one. Uh, he will be in the upcoming show Hunting Whitey at the Wilbur in May. By the way, totally sold out. And yeah. he runs his own production company, 1021 Studios. John Murs joins me. John, welcome to the show, sir. It is so cool to have you here. Thank you, man. I really appreciate uh, the opportunity to be on here, Max. Really. All right. You know what? Let's begin with 1021. Uh, this is your production company, which you run out of Providence, Rhode Island, recently opened, and you do everything. You do like demo reels, book trailers, script work, all kinds of things. How did this thing come to be, and what are you doing right now? Well, uh, I had a former business partner. We parted ways uh, about last year. It, well, it'll be one year. I opened up 1021 right after that. And we right now in the process of shooting a TV pilot based on my Lost and Vampire series. So I haven't been focused on too much more. Like I've got this amazing studio space that somebody came by to look at it today. She was great because uh, she wants to run some acting seminars out of it. And she said, you know, are you fully booked? And I said, I'm not really booked right now because I'm just simply so focused on getting this pilot off the ground and we're just about to move into production. We've been in pre-production for a while and uh, we've got casting just basically finished. Um, and it's an exciting time, but it's busy. It, so I, I'm just like, I haven't even been thinking about, I really need to get this space paying for itself. I'm just so focused on the pilot because we're going to be doing a lot of the shooting in the actual studio. So it's really cool. But 1021 is a little homage to my dad. That was his birthday. Um, he passed when I was 23 back in 1993. Um, so I always wanted to kind of have a have a company that paid homage to to him so 1021 is is a little love a little bit of love for my for my dear old dad so you know. nice nice all right one thing i'm curious about is why this didn't happen sooner i mean like you, you come with such a wealth of knowledge having worked in acting for so many years yeah so we started trying to get the uh series off the ground my buddy jamie and i back in wow 2009 and we we literally went all around new england meeting with billionaires including billionaires that i hadn't even i didn't even know they existed quite frankly um we sat down with one one particular lady and her financial advisor and that was an experience because obviously her financial advisor is you know in charge of of the books and it, it just ran us through this incredible you know, a boot camp, so to speak, I guess would be the best way to, to, to phrase it of, of talking about, well, what's, you know, what's this, what's this, what's this, how are you going to do this? How are you going to do this? It was a fantastic experience, horrifying at the same time, because we were, we felt pretty unprepared for it. Um, so we had, we'd spent a long time doing that. And then finally, when I got 1021 last year, my cousin who had been out in Los Angeles working on some film projects moved back to Rhode Island with his family and said, Hey, we need to do something. Let's, he had been involved. We shot a couple of teaser videos back in 2009. He'd been involved in that. He said, let's get 
this series done. Let's get a pilot done. And so it was a, it was a great sort of convergence of timing and uh, events that happened. And so now here we are, we've been, we've been working on it for a while. I was just in the scene breakdown for the pilot script, color coding, you know, locations and actors. And now we have to kind of put that puzzle together to make sure it, it makes the most sense uh, production wise and, and, you know, a good use of everybody's time. It, it, now's a good time to be doing it. So What's it like being on the other side of the camera, being in charge of the of this entire production? Well, my cousin's going to be directing it, um, but I've been sort of heading up the casting of it. It has been very interesting. So there are, when you get into acting, there are definitely things that you do, like if you shoot a self-tape audition, which since the pandemic has, has sort of become the norm, when you have that file, you're supposed to label that file so if i'm auditioning for something it would say john f murs and then it would you know a little dash and it would say my role and then you send that in it amazes me how many people sent us tapes that just said image dot movie and i'm like well who the hell is this you know so oh, so it's it's geez. really interesting yeah you get you get a feel for what casting directors go through and how they want to pull their hair out and and it's like you know I, somebody sent me a picture and it was like joe's birthday party and i'm like who the hell is joe you know? so it, you know there are these little stumbles that you that you become very aware of when you're on the other on the flip side of things and you just resolve as an actor make sure i never do that because I mean, every actor wants to work. And if you're already making sort of these little rookie mistakes, you're not helping yourself. So exactly. that's been one of the, that's been one of the big things that I've that I've seen. Have you been able to kind of help this next generation kind of wise them up a little bit as to what they're getting into? Well, you know, it's funny. So the the woman who came to the studio today to check it out, we were talking about this and she said, I feel like I want to put an intro video out on on how to actually you know, avoid some of these really common pitfalls. So there may be something coming out. So yeah, yeah, yeah that, like, that would be, that would be, yeah. Yeah. Maybe do, maybe uh, do like a YouTube series of like instructional exactly. how to's, how to do your headshots, how to do, like you said, uh, I think what they call uh, the monologue, you know, how to do all these things. Right. Right. Well, I, I mean, I've got enough amazingly talented friends in this, in this local community. I could have them all come in and and do something like that. It'd be a fun series to shoot. Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about that community because you live in Medfield, so you're yep. not too far from Boston. Of course, the film scene in Massachusetts and Boston and so forth is just tremendous. But what's it like for you to kind of be so immersed in this? It's been interesting. I fell into modeling first. It was 2014, and there was a woman at the CrossFit gym that I worked out at and she said, hey, my friend's a stylist. They need a fit guy in his 40s for a photo shoot. You want to do it? And being a writer and, you know, like, oh, let's go try a new experience. You know, that's cool. So uh, it was actually my wife's birthday. So shout out to her for for being totally cool with going to a photo shoot on her birthday. But by the end of that, the the photography said, you should probably get representation. I was like, dude, I write books for a living. You don't have to blow smoke up my ass. This is just a cool experience. Like, no, no, no. You should really, you know, get into that. So I signed with with Maggie in Boston. And then a couple of years later, uh, my agent sent me this thing that I thought was going to be me talking about cars at a car show. And it wasn't. It was for the miniseries, The Cars That Made America. And I had a bunch of auditions down in Rhode Island. And then we shot and it came out in 2017 and I had such a blast 
the last day of filming, I just had this incredible smile on my face uh, driving home. And I was like, wow, this is, I understand now why people say you get bit by the acting bug and you want to, you want to be doing it all the time. It's just, it's a blast. It's really, really fun. And getting to, you know, as you were saying, the local community around here, there's so much talent. It's scary. I mean, it's, it's legitimately scary when these movie productions come to town, you see some of the people that work around here and you don't see very much of them because they're always off booking other jobs and they're always filming stuff. They're down in Baltimore, they're down in Atlanta, they're, you know, in New York. And when they come on set, you're like, Oh, I know you, you're from around here and you've never worked with them before, but then you, you get a chance to experience their energy and their craft and their talent. It's, it's, it's humbling and it's really it's such it's such an honor. I mean, there's there's no reason to fly talent in when we've got so much around here. All right. This next question is kind of putting you on the spot and I do apologize, but I'm curious <laughs> if, if if there's a name. Any actors or actresses that are your like dream team to work with? Ooh, let's see. Who would I love to work with? You know, uh, what's his and I'm blanking on his name right now. He's on Law and Order now, but he used to be, he was the lead on uh, Burn Notice, and then he was in uh, Sicario. He played an operator. Um, oh, ah, is it Jeffrey? I forget. Anyway, he has he, had, he, had, he has the nerdy glasses in Sicario, and he, he plays um, one of Brolin's guys. Um, but I like him a lot. He's really cool. Um, in terms of, I mean, I'd love to work with Liam Neeson. I'd love to work with uh somebody like oh uh michelle yo i mean would be that would i would i would just love to do a fight scene with michelle yo i think that would just be amazing i mean because i mean she's her whole life she's devoted to martial arts i mean i've been doing martial arts my entire life i think it would just be fun to kind of craft some sort of outrageous fight scene with her i, I that'd be a blast Sir, I'd, I'd die happy after that. That'd be really cool. I'll bet. I'll <laughs> bet. That's actually one thing I was really curious about is kind of taking what you know as a martial artist and applying it to acting. How does that go about? It's it's funny. So I study authentic ninjutsu. So, there, so Hollywood has this idea of what ninjas are and what they're not supposed to be. But I mean, the reality of the situation is that ninjutsu at its core is an espionage system. So it's very, it's a system of gathering intelligence. So there was a whole part of that martial art where these operatives would, would go into a village and they would assume a role in order to gather intelligence, much the same way case officers do for CIA these days. Uh, so there's training <laughs> in that martial art for this actual field. And I had taken a couple of acting courses in college way back um before my my service days um so it's it's funny for me to bring some of these really ancient ostensibly their acting lessons <laughs> into this modern world um but it's pretty cool at the same time because i'm actually getting a chance to really practice a lot of these old skills that most people don't get a chance to and when you actually do an audition and get booked for a role and you no, it's because I took something from then and brought it into the now. It's pretty cool. I, it, it really is. Yes. Yeah. Curious if there's a particular technique or move set that you really love that you've been able to kind of bring to your acting. Um, my acting, somebody asked me 
something about this and and it's probably going to sound a little over the top but what the hell um my acting style is based on if i don't make this believable me or somebody else could die <laughs> it's sort of it's sort of the background that i that i come from and it's just very much like if you're not believable in the role bad things can happen so that's kind of where i come from um that's just a result of my military and government stuff that's yeah that's kind of it <laughs> So when I when I approach, I mean, I don't I don't go at an acting job and go, I have to be super serious about this. But that's always in the back of my my head is that I want to make my performances as believable as possible. You know, I had I had something I had an audition the other day for an indie film. It required me to get emotional. And my wife is doing the self tape with me and, and we finished one of the takes. And she said, are, are you getting ready to cry? And I said, well, yeah, that's what the scene calls for. I'm supposed to be emotional here and trying to hold back tears. And she was just kind of like, wow, I didn't know you could do that. It's like, well, that's the job. I mean, you, yeah, you know, and it's it's got to be believable. And I did that another time in front of another actor and she was mystified. She said, I don't I don't know how you do that. And it's it's I told her, I said, it's just a matter of finding something that gets you emotional and just bringing that up to the fore front of your consciousness and going with it so um so it's it's really important to me in my roles to be to be believable i'd rather i'd rather underplay it and keep that credibility than overplay it and just have somebody watching it going oh my god he's overacting so bad <laughs> like you know and i i'm not going to name the show but there have been a couple of episodes lately on a certain particular really popular show and it was like what is that guy doing because he's it, it was a small like under five line role guy kind of came out he's, it, it was just a completely inappropriate character action for his character and it stuck out like a sore thumb so i i always prefer to rein it in a little bit you know i'm not i'm not going to be bawling in a scene i'm going to look like i'm trying to contain the tears because i think that's more interesting to watch so i have heard and not and i'm not sure if this is true but i've heard that being able to cry on command is like it's it's like the holy grail of acting like if you can do that Holy crap. There's no there's like really? no limit. Not everyone can cry on command. Some people just aren't True. good at it. Just you gotta True. evoke those emotions. So I've heard yeah. that be able to do that really well is like enviable as a All right, I gotta a, I have to update I gotta update my resume then and uh you know, can cry on command. Yeah. Perfect. Cry on command, you know, lots of trauma in the past. <laughs> well, I figure because anyone can be serious. That you know, that's not too hard, I don't think, but be able to right. emote like that, wow. I don't know. What do cool. I know? What do I know? No, no. I, I think it's great. Yeah, I, I'm next casting director. I meet him and be like, I can cry on command. If you don't give me this role, I'll drop a tear right now. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice. All right. Um, you know, one thing I'm really curious about with everything that you do, you know, um, you served in the Air Force. You worked for the government. Uh, of course, highly trained martial artist, massive uh, fitness enthusiast. Why go into acting as as a career? And I know you do other things too, but like, you know, why go to the arts? Well, I've always been sort of in that creative mindset. And one of, I always tell people the, the, the primary impetus for how I live my life was the death of my father when I was just 23 years old. Um, he died when he was 48. So, you know, he'd been a lifelong smoker, but he, he kicked the cigarettes to the curb. He had a quadruple bypass. He was doing well. And then something just happened and he dropped dead. So when you're 23 years old, and your 48 year old father 
suddenly passes, um, it informs a lot of your decisions. It really does. And um, I resolved to myself that I was going to live my life and have no regrets. I was going to try everything that I possibly could. I was going to do as much as I possibly could. When my final day on this planet arrives, I want to be able to look back and say, I squeezed as much as I possibly could have squeezed out of the, out of my time as, as was possible. So it wasn't too much of a, of a leap to say, Oh, I'm really interested in acting now. Let's, let's see where this goes. It was, it, it's just sort of been my behavioral pattern. You know, I, when I got out of the service um, and I was doing protection work, I'd grown up being a voracious reader and I had a lot of time in between my shifts and I said, well, why don't we try writing a novel? So we did that. <laughs> and uh, it's, everything has been an adventure since then. You know, my motto is uh, who dares lives, which is loosely based on the motto of the special air service, uh, Britain's elite counterterror unit. And their motto is who dares wins. I'm not necessarily interested in winning all the time. I am interested in living all the time, though. So who dares lives is is what I've adopted as my personal motto. I like that. I like that. All right. So we mentioned this at the outset, and I'm sure everyone's just dying to hear. You were in the movie, I Want to Dance with Somebody, the Whitney Houston biopic, uh, and your role was as an airline pilot. I, I want to just ask, first off, what was it like being part of such a major production? It was, it was a blast. We shot it out at the uh, Worcester Airport in October 21 yep and um yeah it, it was funny because I arrived on set and I got into my costume I was in my trailer uh it don't don't think it was like this massive Will Smith type of trailer with a gym and all that stuff it was like it didn't even have a bathroom in it so it was just one of these you know kind of side-by-side trailers but it's still cool when you get there and the PA brings you over to it and it says you know captain and john murrah's on it and stuff like that so i got on the set after we'd been mic'd up and the director is looking around and she says uh, all right where's my pilot and you know i said oh over here and she comes over and she says yes she goes you i picked out because you look like a pilot so i picked you out i cast you don't let anybody tell you differently I went, okay that's really cool you know all of a sudden this amazing actress that i knew from silence of the lambs uh is jody foster's roommate uh, casey lemons is directing this movie and she said okay there's there's your jet and it was um what's the the the, the seltzer company that's big around here they've got a little polar bear oh yeah was, uh, uh polar seltzer yeah pull, yeah duh. um it was there it was actually their jet <laughs> that they park out in wow. Worcester. <laughs> so uh so we all climb on board it was me there was an extra who was supposed to be my co-pilot and then naomi aki uh who plays whitney houston Chris Sidbury, who plays Pat Houston, and one of the PAs who had a radio so that we could hear when it was time for action. And we're supposed to exit the plane and then the scene unfolds from there. Uh, it was phenomenal. It was really, really cool. And we went through a number of takes and we were mic'd up for sound, even though it was an incredibly windy day. And my favorite part was when I came down and the and the cameraman, the DP comes over, he says, okay, we're going we're gonna to do your close-ups now. And I said, oh, I get close-ups. He's like, yeah, you get close-ups. You want close-ups, right? I'm like, oh yes, I definitely want close-ups. Uh, my, because my experience with a movie before that was in mother Android when I played Chloe Grace Moretz's father. And I thought I was going to get good camera coverage for that. And then the movie came out 
and you don't really see very much of me. I kind of blend into the Christmas ornaments around the around the door frame. You hear me, but you don't really see me. So the fact that the the director of photography was like, "Oh yeah, you're getting close-ups on this because it's an important scene." I was like, "Okay, this is great." So we shot uh, all day and finished it. I walked over to Casey and said, "Thank you so much. I this was a blast." I said, "I grew up listening to Whitney Houston. I used to, when I worked at uh, Allendale Farm in Jamaica Plain at the farm stand, when I would close up on Saturday afternoons, I Get So Emotional was one of the songs that was out and it seemed to always be playing when I was closing the farm stand. So it's like near and dear to my heart. All this stuff is coming together. It was, it was such a blast. So yeah, it was, it was a great time. And then I did my ADR, um, the uh, dialogue replacement, because it was windy and they caught a lot of the wind. So I had to go in and redo my lines at a, at a sound stage in Boston. And that was in September. So I got to see my scene then. And I felt really, I was psyched walking out. I was like, Oh, I've got amazing coverage. I'm like right there on the screen. You don't, you can't miss me kind of, you know, kind of moment. And I'm calling my wife going, you're not going to believe this. It's unbelievable. And the sound engineer was really cool too. Cause I'm trying to be covert and kind of hold up the iPhone while the scene's playing. I'm like, he's like, yeah, you he's just don't post it anywhere. It's, it's totally fine. And I didn't, you know, it was just, but it was just so cool. So yeah. cool. I love it. I love it. Now, did they make you sign like all kinds of like NDAs and such that you couldn't talk about this with anyone for the longest time? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty, pretty standard depending on what the project is. A lot of times when you go into audition, if you do an in-person audition, there's an NDA there as well. Um, so even if you haven't even you haven't even booked the job yet and they make you sign an NDA just because they don't want anybody to know about the project and what's coming out. So, yeah, I mean, it's um, it wasn't too bad on this movie. I mean, there were a couple of things that we weren't allowed to talk about. You're not allowed to shoot pictures on the set. Um, primarily because they don't want any production pictures getting out there, but people do it anyway. Um, sometimes the crew is doing it. Like I have a great picture inside the plane with me and the, and the PA on it. And she had taken the picture of, of all of us, uh, that were in that scene inside the plane. So that was, you know, those are really nice. It's nice when, when somebody on the crew is like, look, I know you want a picture here. Just give me your Instagram. I'll drop it to you. Just don't post it anywhere until the movie comes out or, you know, th that kind of stuff. Yeah. So as long as you abide by that, they're pretty cool. Cool. Yeah. Cool. This would likely be a career highlight for you, right? It's definitely, yeah. I mean, the miniseries was great because I had a huge role in that for two episodes. Um, but in terms of visibility, I want to dance with somebody is absolutely, yeah. It's definitely the career high right now, for sure. Mm. Yeah. Um, how long would you say your scene is in the movie? Probably a good 45 seconds to a minute, all told. Yeah, and I had to, when I did my ADR session... They asked me to improv some lines at the end as as Whitney and well, as Naomi Aki and Chris Sidbury are walking away. There's a couple of lines. You can't really hear them, but it's me kind of calling to my co-pilot, hey, fuel up the, the plane again and make sure you call Bob and Sue and whoever else. So I did. You know, I, I did, it was a nice long scene and it happens at a good point in the movie. There's really nobody else in the scene except Naomi Aki and Chris Sidbury and myself. So the camera's right on me. The coloring is great, you know, because we're outside and it's bright and it's a pivotal scene where I have to tell Whitney and, and help her realize that her father is in control of her finances. So it's kind of one of those really cool scenes that I had a feeling wasn't going to get cut, 
And it was interesting because I was actually up for another role um, playing Stanley, Tucci, uh, Stanley Tucci's uh, love interest as Clive Davis. Um, I was supposed to, they want, they were looking at me for that role as well. And I focused on the pilot and I said, I'd rather do the pilot just because of the nature of the scene. I knew I was going to be with the star. I knew that the scene was pretty pivotal. And the other scene that I had been given for Clive Davis's lover wasn't all that pivotal. And I felt like, eh, this might get cut. <laughs> and as it turned out, a lot of stuff got cut. So I, I know a lot of people who worked really hard around here and their scenes were just cut down to nothing. So I feel very fortunate. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right. So one thing I've been kind of curious about leading up to this. So this scene, roughly about um about a minute. How do you prepare for this, given that the scene itself was, you know, pivotal but brief? Yeah. Brief, yeah, yeah. So I was I was in my trailer going over my lines and you know, it's it's funny, you reach a point, I call it the saturation point where you start flubbing the lines that had previously been locked in your head. And you start going, wait, what was the first line again? And at that point, I just tossed the script away because I, you're doing yourself a disservice. You know, you have there comes a point where you have to trust that what you've been training and what you've been memorizing and, and what you've been trying to internalize for the character is going to carry you through. Even if it's not the exact line, you can't get in your head about it. You just have to go out and do it. And so once I reached that point, I was like, all right, we're done what will be will be so yeah. you know and then you just try to get caught up in the fun of the moment um you know in between takes we were sitting on the plane and naomi aki chris sidbury and i were you know just talking just shooting the shit basically and everybody that i've worked with in this industry has just been i haven't had a bad experience i really haven't chloe grace moretz when i was working with her on mother android for our scene and, and literally like if you watch the movie i'm two minutes in if that, and then all the stuff happens and you never see me again, but in between takes, she's swearing like a sailor. And I'm like, we're going to get along so well because I drop F-bombs like it's going out of style. And she was like, Oh, you, you, were you a veteran? I'm like, yes, I was a veteran. She's like, Oh yeah, this is great. So yeah. I mean, it's, you know, everybody's really chill in between takes. It's, it's just, it's the cool community. You know, I haven't, I haven't worked with anybody that, that has portrayed themselves or acted like a diva um, I know that there those people are out there, but I've been fortunate that everybody I've worked with has just been awesome. I mean, Chris, Chris Sidbury is this amazingly talented actress and, you know, she and I were, were repped by some of the same people here locally. And, you know, we stay in touch, we swap messages on Instagram and she's doing great things. And, you know, it's just, it's just people are just a delight. Honestly, they really are. Do you ever feel overwhelmed being the presence of people like that who have done such amazing things, who have had such phenomenal careers? I don't know if overwhelmed is the word I'd use. I'm very conscious of the achievements that, that people have done. So going back to Chloe Grace Moretz again, I mean, she's been in show business her entire life. She's got credits everywhere and she's amazingly accomplished. Um, I, but with that said, I find it's not that difficult to just simply be able to recognize this is an accomplished person, but they're still a human being. They're still, they still have to get up in the morning and put their pants on one leg at a time like everybody else does. Um, and so that's generally how I try to look at things. Now, that's based on my experience right now. If all of a sudden Robert De Niro knocked on my door, 
that might be an entirely different thing. And, you know, and I just, you know, I just watched the trailer for his new movie with Sebastian Maniscalco. And it's like, there's nothing this guy can't do. You know, I mean, it's just, just phenomenal. I tend to be, I, I, I tend to try to look for the commonality in people, no matter what their accomplishments are. Like I said, you know, everybody has to put their pants on one leg at a time. Uh, unless you're one of these strange people that can do a backflip and land in a pair of pants, which apparently is a thing now on TikTok, but you know, in my day, no. <laughs> get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Damn kids with the TikToks and whatever else no. they're doing these days. Those acrobatics, I tell you. Yeah, crazy. I, I've actually heard of some people who have actually gotten acting careers from posting things to TikTok, which is insane. Yeah. Yeah. These, the, the creator economy, it's, it's, it's incredible. Incredible. Does that change your approach to how you do things? No. I mean, I tried. Uh, I've tried dipping my toe in the TikTok thing a couple of times. I have a couple of reasonably funny videos out there, you know, that I shot that are sort of a split screen of me reading one of my books. And then I walk in and I kind of point, Hey, it's a John Murr's book. That's great. You know, I have a fun time doing that every once in a while, but it doesn't, it doesn't affect how, how I approach the business. I think, um, you know, it's, it's very much the same when I write a book, you know, um, my, I want to approach my acting so that when I see myself on TV, I enjoy seeing it. You know, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, that was cool. You know, we we did we did well there. Um, the same thing, you know, I want my writing to be the sort of book that I would pick up in a bookstore and enjoy. So um, I try not to let the, the the fads influence me too much unless all of a sudden the industry goes, yep, we're only doing TikTok people from now on, in which case I will hustle on over to TikTok and try to get my dancing <laughs> shoes on and see what we'll see what happens and and then just try and try and pretend like you were always there from the beginning oh yeah oh yeah. that's why i have the account over there i can just go back and go it's been a while i was kidnapped by boko haram and you know it's so uh, you know <laughs> can't talk about it though but it definitely happened don't look it up you won't right, find right. it right sure yeah <laughs> never in the news but trust me it happened it was there never no yeah somebody will post a post a screenshot of me drinking a gin and tonic by the fire from my instagram thing and the whole gig will be up you know so <laughs> Oh man! Hey, I was actually wondering. Uh, since you served in the Air Force, did that come into play at all in this role, either in terms of like personality or how you referred to things? Um, I think one of, one of the reasons why the director liked me for the role is that you know certain roles you can kind of tell who's been in the military. Once you're in the military, you, there's going to be up there's something that sticks to you. There's a vibe. There's an R, whatever you want to call it. And when I saw that it was a that it was the when I was auditioning for the pilot role, I just let that that fly, so to speak. And uh, I think she picked up on it and she really liked me for it. It's a hard thing to mimic if you if you haven't been in it. You know, a lot of times it comes across as just being overplayed. Um, and one of the one of the things casting the TV pilot, going back to that, the roles that are excuse me, that the characters would have had some type of a military background. I very much look for people, veterans who have that because then it's it's not even acting. It's just there inherently. It's very organic and it's a nice thing. I, the, the lead actor for the series, um, a veteran named Brandon Stumpf from New Hampshire, just it just comes across beautifully. It's really, really nice. But then it's also really cool when somebody doesn't have that, but they can carry it off because one of the 
one of the lead bad guys in the pilot is going to be played by this amazing actress named Liz Ang. And she came in and she has no military background, but she just switched on and it was, it was awesome. It was, it was great. Uh, she came in, we had, we brought her in for a callback and in one of the scenes, she's got a sniper rifle and we've got this replica firearm. It's not a real firearm. Um, but it weighs a good 10 pounds and Liz is, is fairly petite and she just comes in and picks the sniper rifle up and just cocks it like right on her hip. Like it was nobody's business completely familiar with it. Had it just through the vibe and the director and I were like, okay, this is really cool. <laughs> so, so, you know, even if you don't have the military background, if you can, you know, it's, it's a testament to her acting ability that she was able to, to make us feel like she had that. So it's pretty cool. Mm, okay. When the time comes that you get to see this movie, you get to your scene. Are you the kind of person who kind of like cringes away or do you be like, no, be like, no, this is my scene. I want to see this nope. shit. Everyone needs to see this shit. So my wife and my two sons went to Patriot Place the day it opened. And uh, I sat there and as it came on, I had this enormous smile. I'd already seen it in the ADR session. So I took a quick moment to look next door at my wife and my two sons and and they all had just like this i'll never forget the expression it was it was just big smiles and then you just i love it i just i huge i mean mother android when it came out it came out on hulu this was my first movie it's on a 70 foot screen it's just i just sat there and just went holy shit this is fucking great (laughs) so (laughs) no i didn't cringe no cool cool nice all right um, personally, I am the kind of person who, who cringes. Like when I have to listen to my own voice during, oh, the, yeah. during my well, edits. If we're talking, if we're talking about voice, I, it took me a long time to get used to my voice because I know how it sounds in my head. But then when you hear it back, you're like, really? I sound like that. It's like, ah, oh, you sound terrible. What am I yeah, thinking? Yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ. Everybody, growing up, everybody's like, well, you really have a voice for radio. And I was like, oh, maybe I do. And then I heard it for the first time and I was like, God, really? There's a term, uh, you have a face for radio and that's actually... Yes. And that actually is a reference to the old days because I guess when you're doing radio, you would articulate in a very different way than you would talking to someone in public. And right. so it's a reference to those facial gyrations, basically, that people would make when they were doing radio back in the day. So, yep. yeah. Historical tidbit for you. Um, but it. speaking of history, let's talk about Boston history. So we've, we've uh, got the show Hunting Whitey coming out. On May sixteenth yes. at the Wilbur, totally sold out, um, yep. and of course, you, you say the name Whitey, and everyone knows what you're talking about. Yep. What's your role in this, and how did this one come together? So last year, uh, best-selling authors Casey Sherman and Dave Wedge they do true crime novels. Uh, they're just fantastic storytellers. They did a sort of a version on their podcast as a one-night event at the Wilbur, and they took five. Um, five acts to cover five of their different uh, the books that they had written. And I was cast in that last year as uh, Franconia, New Hampshire, Corporal Bruce McKay, who was gunned down by somebody up in Franconia, Notch, New Hampshire. And so Casey had talked about wanting to expand the act that they did on the hunt for Whitey Bulger last year. And he and Dave took the the ensuing year and actually fleshed it out nicely. And so I play uh, Special Agent Phil Torsney of the FBI. And my partner, 
uh, Tommy McDonald, who is played by the amazingly talented Jay Street. Uh, we are brought in by special assistant special agent in charge, Noreen Gleason, who is played by local actor and another phenomenal talent, uh, Patty, uh, Patty O'Neill. And she puts us on Whitey's tail, so to speak. We're fugitive hunters and we know what we're doing. And we go back to sort of ground zero and start asking family members. And then we start talking about how can we track down Catherine Gregg, who is Whitey's girlfriend. And it's through the serial number on her breast implants that we get our big break and manage to get a picture of her and figure out where she is. And we get a tip from somebody in Iceland of all places. And it leads us to Whitey. So um, Neil McDonough, who Hollywood perennial actor is headlining as Whitey Bulger. And uh, it's going to be an amazing event. It's going to be great. I've been a fan of his since Band of Brothers and some of the, you know, Suits and God, he's been in everything. So just to be around him and to be able to work with him is going to be great. And then returning cast members like Kevin Lassett, Paul Kandarian, Christine Moan, um, Lynn Hult. Uh, all these people were involved in the production last year. Um, Jay Street, like I said before, Arthur Hugh. Um it's going to be great to just reunite with them for another for another one night event. It's going to be great. Yeah. So this is a stage play, meaning there's no cuts, there's there's no retakes, there's no do overs. How do you basically not mess things up? You know. Fortunately, we we have teleprompters on the stage, so if we get stuck or if, or if something doesn't uh, doesn't fly, then we just have to look down. A little bit, you know, as un- unnoticeably as possible, and pick up the line and and go from there. I will not even try to use those if, if possible. It is definitely a different sort of feeling than being on a film set, with you know, being able to say, "Oh, that was terrible. Let's go again. Have another take." And especially since the Wilbur is completely sold out, so there's eleven, twelve hundred people in the audience all watching you it's definitely uh it's definitely a little intimidating but then you just i don't know you know when i'm scared to do something the best way i found to to get over that is to just simply go through it and go what's going to happen is going to happen it's you know i have to do this so i can either curl up in 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 the corner and not do it or i can just do what i'm supposed to be doing and, and see where see where it takes me but um yeah, it's it's a different feeling being back backstage when you know that your scene's coming up. Last year was, you know, it's interesting to see different actors and how they how they process, you know, what's coming up. You know, some people like to retreat; they'll go off. I went upstairs. There was a, there's a stairway in the back of the Wilbur that goes up to you know whatever floor the main office is on, or it's a small business office. And I just sat down on the stairs up there, ran my lines, and then as you know, when I felt good i came down and it was time to go um, my role this this time is is a lot meatier there are a lot lot more lines so uh we'll see it's just you know rehearse rehearse hone it and then go for it <laughs> you know? one thing i've always been curious about for stage actors uh, is um when they have a role that is that just tons and tons of lines how do you memorize it all like like what's your technique well, I'm fortunate. Um, I went to Boston Latin School, and one of my teachers, uh, a guy named Mr. O'Leary, taught his class, and you either learned rote memorization 
or you failed. His tests were literally you just regurgitating his lectures to you word for word. And if and I found out early on, I had some sort of strange talent for doing that. I couldn't solve algebra problems to save my life, but I could listen to Mr. O'Leary talk for 40 minutes, write down every damn word that guy said, and then memorize it and give it back to him on a test. And then later on in college, uh, Professor Petey over at UMass Boston, who was my East Asian studies professor, taught the exact same way. And you passed his class by doing the exact same thing. So it was, I've had these, I had these two amazing, and they were great teachers, but it's not really... I don't think uh, a hell of a way to to actually educate somebody, but it does teach you rote memorization. And I have this weird freaking talent <laughs> for it. So um, yeah, so shout out to Mr. O'Leary and Professor Petey, both of which are, I don't know if either of them are still alive, but if they are, thank you very much. So so really you you kind of owe your acting career to, the, to uh, these guys in a sense. Yeah, yeah, in a sense, for sure. I mean, there was, you know, I took some acting classes in college and there was a a little, um, I don't even remember her name, but she was, I mean, maybe she was four feet tall, if that. And she was just one of these old Eastern European women, you know, who taught me speech and movement and speech and uh, oral presentation. And she had all these really funky exercises that were like part yoga, part breathing exercises. And she was great too. I mean, that was my Wednesday night class and it was a late class. We'd, we'd stay in the, in the theater for three hours and she taught us all these great stuff great breathing techniques. It was awesome. So I owe her definitely a tip of the hat as well. Wow. Okay. Now, uh, how familiar were you with the the whole Whitey Bulger story? Did you have to do any kind of research to kind of get into the role? Um, I'm doing some research right now on the FBI agent that I play. Um, but growing up in Boston, I grew up in Jamaica Plain. They were, you know, Whitey was, was always around. I mean, his, his the myth of Whitey Bulger was pervasive in everything. I used to hang out in Chinatown an awful lot, and I knew a lot of uh, Chinese gangsters, for lack of a better term. And so there were, I was not involved in anything illegal or anything like that, but I was very cognizant of the various crime factions that were at play in Boston in the 80s, especially. Wow. And of course, playing an FBI agent, very familiar territory, right? Yeah, yeah, reasonably familiar, sure. <laughs> Man, uh, do you tend to feel more comfortable in roles where you can kind of reflect on some past experience that kind of relates to it? I mean, the easy answer is yes, but I don't necessarily seek those roles out. I, You know, I like to be challenged. So, you know, I talked about the audition the other day where I had to get emotional on film for that. That's that's a challenging role that I like. I mean, any any role is a challenge, obviously. But I don't seek out comfortable roles that I might be able to draw on from my background in order to play them convincingly. I'm pretty much open for anything. I mean, you know, I'm I'm straight. I've been married for 29 years and, you know, they wanted me to play Clive Davis's lover. And I was like, OK, yeah, it's just another role. It's a challenge. Let's see. Let's see where it goes. And then as it developed and another script writer came on, it was at that point they were like, okay, you're either going to, you know, they were looking at you either for the pilot or for Clive Davis's lover. And it was like, I think the pilot has a better chance of actually making, <laughs> making it into the movie. So yeah, but no, I don't, I don't shy away from, from a role um, just because it's, it's not something I can draw on my past from. Your reaction to the news that Hunting Whitey was sold out. Really cool. 
Not unexpected. Not really surprised. I mean, Bostonians, we, you know, we, we love a bad guy, you know, it's, it's, yeah. And, and Whitey's whole thing is that there was this whole sort of Robin Hood mythology around him. And, you know, he was, he was getting one over on the FBI and he was doing this. And I knew some people that were like, Oh, he's not, he's not as bad as the news makes him out to be like, okay. <laughs> you know, I, you know, my experiences in Chinatown taught me that that was a little horseshit because people down there that I was hanging out with, you know, they were saying, oh, you know, Stephen Say, who runs the Ping On Tong and, you know, out of Tai Tong Village, he's not that bad of a guy. And I'm like, oh, I know for a fact that he really is. <laughs> you know? So, um, but yeah, I wasn't surprised when it sold out. I mean, Neil McDonough's, he's, you know, he's a Hollywood name. People know him. Um, and the mythology of Whitey is, it, it, it's such a magnet. It really, really is. All right, John. Well, thank you so much for joining me. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun to dive into these two major productions, learning about 1021 Studios. Uh, folks, if you go to johnmers.net, J-O-N-M-E-R-Z.net, you find him on his socials, you follow him there, you're going to find everything you need to know. And if you're looking to, you know, uh, book a trailer, do some demo reel scenes, that is the place to go. And John, very much enjoyed this conversation and looking forward to the next one. Thank you, Max. It was a great time. This is Batches Below, and you're watching Citywide Blackout, justice for all. And that brings this episode to a close. Thanks to everyone for listening, and be sure to follow the show on Facebook at Citywide Blackout and Twitter and Instagram at Citywide Max. You can reach me at citywidemax at yahoo.com to suggest a guest or submit music for the Blackout Collection playlist. You can find this show wherever you check out your favorite podcasts, and new episodes are aired every Saturday at 10 p.m. EST on Boston Free Radio. That's all for now, and I'll see you next time.